God damn it, really? Hey, everybody, welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. With me, Bob Schneider, and your other host, Clint Wells. You're welcome. Dude, I'm not wearing any sunglasses. No? I don't have my normal pipe, my Meerschaum pipe. Now I do. Nothing makes me feel like a real man, like putting a pipe in my mouth. Nothing makes you feel like a real man than putting a pipe in your mouth that has no tobacco in it. And then you have to make this sound. That's the pipe sound. Bitch. Hmm. And and you have to say the word bitch afterwards. When you say pipe sound, always follow pipe sound with the word bitch. Now, does it matter who I'm talking to? Nope. Could it be the president of the United States of America? Yes, it could be. Could it be a dental student at the Iowa Dental School? Yeah, could be. Either way, if I say the word pipe sound, know that the next word that's coming out of my mouth is not going to be Mr. President or dental student, but it will be bitch. So good morning, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. It's good to see you. We've been going back through Seinfeld, which has been really fun, but man, it's a time capsule. It's just so, the world is so different than when Seinfeld was a big TV show. Yeah, don't say. And one of the things <clears throat> that pops out, I mean, we've been making fun of the clothes probably since 10 years after that, but now like big cultural things are really different. First of all, all the cancelly shit, all the racist shit. There was a whole midget episode the other day. <laughs> so all of that. But one of the things that struck me last night was how often Michael Richards' character, Kramer, just lights up cigars in these tiny little New York apartments. Like, could you imagine, like when people smoke cigars outside now, I feel like as a society, we're like, oh, that's a really strong smell and not many people smoke cigars. He's like in cabs and in Jerry's apartment, just in these tiny little buildings, public buildings in New York City, lighting up cigars. Did that really happen then? I mean, I was a kid in the 90s. Oh yeah, I only smoked indoors, in cars, indoors. At restaurants, at the table in restaurants. I smoked in theaters. I smoked in theaters, dude. I smoked on planes. Dude, I smoked everywhere you could be. I smoked. And then, I don't know when it was. It must have been sometime in the 90s. They just started making some rules. Like, the first one to go was the airplane. They're like, you can't smoke on the airplane. I was like, what? That's when you need to smoke is on a plane. You need to smoke cuz you're nervous. That got taken away. And then I don't know if it was restaurants, it was like some restaurants but not all restaurants. And then it must happen after 95 cuz I got sober in 95 and I used to go to uh my home group. You could smoke. And it was a tiny room, dude. Tiny. And on half of the room, you couldn't smoke, and half of the room, you could. Yeah, it makes no sense. <laughs> Dude, the whole room was filled with smoke. You just didn't have somebody sitting next to you smoking. You had a guy 10 feet away from you smoking. I do remember being a kid. I remember going to restaurants, and they would ask our parents, smoking or non-smoking section. Right. And it's like, and like, yeah, people smoking on an airplane. If one guy is smoking a cigarette on an, a fucking airplane, everyone is smelling that, let alone if... 20 of the passengers are. Yeah, half the plane would be smoking and the other half wouldn't. And then if you were far away, 
it wasn't that bad. But if you were like a seat away, you were just might as well have been in the smoking section. And then, so all of that happened. And then finally, they were like, okay, no more smoking in restaurants, which was like, oh, man. And then you couldn't smoke in theaters for a long time. I don't ever remember being able to smoke in a theater until I went to New York, and then I could smoke in the theater in New York, and I was like, oh, this is cool. So I don't know when that became like a nationwide thing, but then the fucking, the real bummer, the straw that destroyed the camel, where the camel never walked again, was you couldn't smoke in bars. Now, there were a few places like Alabama or Louisiana where you could still smoke in bars, but for the most part, you couldn't smoke in any bars anywhere in the States. And that that was probably by 2000. That was final. And then, dude, I used to, I played at the Saxon Pub every Monday. And from 95 to, when did I start playing there? Probably 90, I guess probably 98-ish, 99 is when I started there. And then, dude, that place was Thick. It was like the thickest fog oh, I can with, of smoke. And I just remember when they when they passed the thing, and they passed it in Austin before they passed it everywhere in Texas. And they passed this thing where you couldn't smoke in bars, and I was all pissed off. Even though I hadn't smoked in probably five years at that point. I'd quit smoking. Maybe it was three years. I'd quit smoking in maybe 96. But I was like, come on, man. Let people smoke. And I kind of felt like I was getting some free smokes at the Saxon Pub. <laughs> some secondary, yeah. Yeah, secondary smokes. Secondhand, yeah. Anyways, they passed the law. I was, like, upset about it. And then you get used to just being in an environment where there's no smoke. And then you, then I would go to some place where they would allow smoking, like in Tennessee. And it was so fucking horrible. Yeah. Like when you go from no smoking environment back to smoking environment, oh my god, dude! It's pretty weird how ubiquitous it was before that. Like everyone just tolerated it. It's so strange to think about. You didn't even think about it. There was never a time from the time I started smoking when I was like fifteen or sixteen, where as soon as you get done eating, you just you have ashtrays all over the house. You just put an ashtray on the table and you start smoking, or you use your plate as an ashtray. You always, when you finished eating, smoked. Period. Kathunk. <laughs> That's the way it was, dude. And then I would see people like open up their windows to smoke in their car. And I was like, what a bunch of fucking pussies. If you're going to smoke, dude, keep the windows up like a real fucking dude. But what's funny is now when you occasionally see that person, you'll see someone smoking in their car with the windows up. And I'm looking at this, but I'm like, can you believe that person? <laughs> you look oh at people. You look at people. Anybody that smokes inside their house now, you just assume they're a monster. <laughs> it's like, so true. Like if somebody <laughs> lights up in their house, you're like, what are you doing? I literally can't remember the last time I was in somebody's house and they were smoking in their house. No, it like they just happen. go outside now, and it's their house. It's their house. And they're not smoking in it. I'm like, what? I know a friend of ours that I'm pretty sure smokes in their house, and that's Adam Temple. Well, first of all, it's not a house. First of all, it's not his. Second of all, he's living in somebody's house. And it's not a house. It's an apartment, probably. 
Oh my god! And by the way, I know exactly where he lives. He doesn't. He lives in a barn. He definitely smokes in the barn. It's a storage shed. It's not a barn. <laughs> Maybe we can talk a little bit about Adam, which we have before. I've been really enjoying his poetry in the poetry group, by the way. But uh, I do remember one time I was hanging out with you and Austin, and uh, you wanted to go buy his place, and you were just sort of telling me a little bit about it. And I remember having so much anxiety that I was like, I'm not going to get out of the car. I'm not going in. I couldn't handle it because you were just telling me about his apartment and kind of hoarder style. And because you were telling me about he lived with you for a while. And Yeah. So in 94 or 95, somewhere around there, I met him. I met him in 91. And I know I think I've told this story before where I ended up at some girl's house and then her roommate was his girlfriend at the time. But he was homeless then. He was just living with her. And then they broke up about a year or two later. And then he was homeless again. He was just always been kind of homeless. But we were fast friends starting in 91. Like, we hung out every day. Like, basically, he'd come over. We'd get a 12-pack of beer. We'd get a joint from somebody, smoke a joint, drink a 12-pack of beer, smoke a pack of cigarettes each. And that's how we'd spend most days. And it was fun. It was really funny, like so funny. And that's the way it went. And he's a great, great guitar player, like knows a ton of knowledge. Like, But he's a guitar player, like his favorite guitar player is Ingwe Malmsteen. <laughs> like, so he likes that kind of guitar playing, like super noty, super fast. The Daner Shredder, yeah. Like, and he know, like he, he studies the guitar grimoire, you know, that book. With no. that dude that's got the half beard. Have you ever seen that shit? It's the just a grimoire. <laughs> dude, you just open it up and it's just billions of chords. It's a billion chords. It sounds like a Dungeons and Dragons villain. It looks like a Dungeons and Dragons book is what it. And you look at the picture of the guy on the cover and you just go, this guy's never been laid. And all he does is masturbate. And then in between masturbation breaks, he just plays guitar. That's all he does. Are we talking about him or me? Wait, which <laughs> grimoire are we talking We're talking about, about every guitar player that's ever lived. <laughs> that's <laughs> worth their weight in gold. Anyways, he knows all this knowledge. He's incredibly, he's incredibly brilliant. Um, and he's a great listener. We started writing all these songs together where we just sit around. He'd have a guitar and I'd just rec- press record. And we wouldn't know what we were recording. And he would just start playing. And then I had books filled with like lyrics and i would just start singing the lyrics on top of whatever he had written and we probably wrote a couple hundred songs that way and around 94 um he was at my house one night and it was the middle of summer and if you live in austin you know how hot it gets here i mean it's it's 98 degrees at at 2 a.m in the morning and he was leaving my house and I'm like, where are you going? Because I knew he was homeless. And he was like, I'm just going to go outside and I'm going to sleep in my car. This is like at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, dude, just sleep on the couch. You're fine. A year and a half later, I moved out of my house to get away from him. Because once <laughs> once he... Once he... Once he puts his roots down. Once he, once he sat on that couch, <laughs> you just couldn't kick him out. Because he was set, he's such a good hang... And so, like, what am I going to, like, the next night go, hey, man, get out of here and go to your car? No, he was just, after that, he just lived there without paying rent on the couch with no income. Like, he didn't have a job, but somehow he would just come up with a, a 
couple dimes to rub together. I don't know how he made money. It was so <laughs> weird. And I was like, dude, we need to get you some money. So I was like, let's start a band. We started the scabs and started playing right after I got sober in 95. And, uh, and so after I moved out, my roommates were like, get the fuck out of here. Bob doesn't live here anymore. I had roommates in this house. It was a big house. So as soon as I moved out, they kicked him out. He had to find a place. We found an apartment, the shittiest, gangsteriest, low-level apartment you can find in Austin called El Casa. And he, he lived there. Like, it's a place where people, you know, occasionally got killed. Like, occasionally, occasionally, yeah, occasionally you'd come home and there'd be some sirens. And they'd go, hey, what's the deal? Oh, some guy's dead in the apartment complex. That's where he lived. So I went over there after he'd been living there for a few months, and I'd never seen that show Hoarders. So I had no idea of what a Hoarders house looked like. I go into this tiny apartment. I think it was a one-bedroom apartment, but it was so crammed full of trash and shit, like clothes and junk and trash and empties, like literally a thousand empty aluminum cans of empty beer and hundreds or thousands of packs of empty cigarettes, thousands of cigarette butts. His room, you couldn't go into the bedroom because the bedroom was piled from the door. When you looked, the bedroom was piled high to the ceiling with clothes and stuff. Pans. (laughs) Pans. I mean, just anything. It was so weird. I was like, I wasn't expecting you to say pens. And there was like a tiny from the door to the middle of the living room, which the place was small. It was a tiny kitchen living room combo, a bedroom and a and a bathroom. From the door to the, he had put a mattress down in the middle of the floor, which was covered with stuff. Everything was covered with stuff, but there was a tiny trail from the door to that mattress and then a tiny trail to the bathroom. The kitchen was unusable. Couldn't, there was no trail into the kitchen. Kitchen was off limits. Kitchen was sinks, sink full of dirty dishes, more dirty dishes, never to be cleaned again. And then covered with more trash and more stuff and clothes and (laughs) shit. And much to my chagrin, because I have a huge rat phobia. At some point I, I, sent some motion off to my left and I look and there's a fucking rat just (laughs) making his way across the pile of shit and rubbish. You know what I would love to see is like a time lapse, a slow motion time lapse, because here's the deal. There was a day when he walked into that place and it looked like a normal couple of rooms. Just this room goes to this room and this goes to this room because human beings like to live in little boxes and little rooms. That's what we do. Yeah. And just the slow accumulation of like, like, how does one who doesn't have anything acquire so many things? Well, you, first of all, you never take out trash. You never clean. And I don't know. I don't know how he acquired all these clothes. Like, he, <laughs> exactly. he, he would always wear the same thing. He just wore the same. He wore whatever he had on. And he never changed. So I don't know why he had all these clothes or where he got them from. <laughs> it was like he had. It really is a mystery. It was so weird. And just stu- he had so much stuff and it was just all junk. And then every once in a while, he'd get a girlfriend. Oh, here's the other thing. So How? How would he do that? So since we were playing with the scabs, the the scabs, after about a year, became really successful in Austin. And the last part of the 90s, probably like 97, 98, 99, 
we were like one of the biggest bands in town and and routinely did very well and we just we got paid in cash we split the money at the end of the night and so amongst all this filth you would look over on his dresser and there'd be ten thousand dollars in in <laughs> cash just wadded up on in piles not like neatly stacked or anything just cash right like because the problem was, yeah because here and here's why the ten thousand turned into just more trash in his house his problem isn't that he didn't have money his problem is way deeper than that because when he gets the ten thousand the ten thousand just becomes crumpled trash like everything else in his apartment. Well, plus he was just he he had spent years and years with no income, so he had learned how to live not spending not spending yeah. any money. And so once he started making this money, he just started accumulating. He didn't know what to do. And then he would just do he would it was a dude who did not know how to spend money and he would just buy stupid shit. He wouldn't spend any money and then he'd like spend $2000 on like an amp or something. But not an amp that never would work. Like, yeah. oh man, I got this I got this is the amp that Ingwie Malmsteen used back in 1982 <laughs> to record whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, let's hear it. Oh, it doesn't work. Wow. I'm like, what? The dude just did not know how to live life, dude. He grew up. He grew up like on a commune, or like well, he's from a, Alabama. He's from Alabama, like me. Yeah, but his dad was like this hippie, and his mom, who I met later, was in absolutely 100 percent completely insane. And uh, and that's he grew up on this commune and basically was kind of left to fend for himself when he was. A, <laughs> he showed me this letter. I wish I I wish I had a phone back when he showed me this letter. I would have taken a picture of it and I could read it for you. But it was the most fucked up letter I've ever heard from a from an actual mom to her son. And it was basically like, "Hey, I heard you're doing good. Go fuck yourself." <laughs> Basically something, it was something weird like that. And then I actually met his mom one time with her son and you read Harry Potter, right? Absolutely. You know, the Dursleys, how horrible they are and oh, how, they, yeah. how much they love their fat, retarded son. Yeah. I met his mom. Dudley. And she had had her own Dudley. And this kid was just dumb looking. He just looked dumb. And he but was, he was her he but was he was dumb. her little angel. And he was her little angel. And you could tell that she cared for him. And you could tell that he was just gonna grow up into and just become a burden. You could tell he was gonna he she was grooming him to become a burden to society. And she was a burden. And I was like, okay, I get it. I'm sorry. You got dealt a real shitty hand. Like to the point where he just he has no like you got dealt a shitty hand. You you guys are both from Alabama. You got dealt a real shitty hand with your dad. Luckily, you had your mom. Mm -hmm. You had your mom and you had a good stepdad. He never had any of that. He yeah. had a shitty he had the same dad as you. And then he had an insane, crazy, horrible mom. I have a few friends who, you know, the dad story is really common, right? Shitty dad. Dad wasn't there. Dad didn't play catch with me. Whatever the fuck. My friends that have shitty mom stories, it's almost worse. Like to really not have the matriarch of your family be strong for you is almost in a weird way more fucked up because it's that mother's love. Like men are selfish and self-involved and you can, it's not hard to imagine that a man was too selfish to be around for his kid. But when a mom is like that, it feels in a way 
more tragic, I guess. The dudes that I know that never had families, never had kids, guess what they didn't have? Moms. Or if they had moms, their moms were just checked the fuck out. If your moms yeah. checked the fuck out, you're only going to be looking for somebody who's checked the fuck out. And you can find them. They're called box folk. And you'll find them. <laughs> and they'll cozy up to you for a minute. And then they're out of there. Uh, you'll know them by their 10,000 yard stare. Um, I wanted to read Adam's latest poem because it ties in a little bit to what about a little bit about his childhood. He actually talks about like walking around in the country. So let me read, let me read this real quick. I laughed for a long time after this. And then most of his poems are like this. So the title of the poem is I never saw her dance. Here's the poem, which by the way, was the phrase for that. That was the phrase, right? He says, sometimes your son, this is how it starts. Sometimes your son can develop a horrible skin disease. We call Californians. <laughs> That's the first. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a real genius. He says, sometimes when I walk around in the country, I think, fuck you, Jimmy. This company is too small to scale up that dramatically. Aging is super fucked up, Reggie. Hand me that tampooner so I can absorb all this reality armpit moisture fruit wigs. I love Ginger Rogers. I used to love watching her on Gilligan's Island. That bitch could sing, boy, tell you what. The yeah. end. There you go. Well, he, I mean, he really truly is a genius. He's, he's definitely tamped it down a little bit with the excessive amount of drinking and drugs that he's done. I mean, I quit all of it when I was 29 and he's my age. So he's continued to do it for 25 more years. And yeah, it's starting to show like he's just not, he's just not as clear. He's not as bright. I mean, not that I'm the brightest bulb in the in the bulb. Dude, the thing I realized recently, I don't know if you listen to Chris D'Elia, but I've been listening to him a lot since he's come back from the uh, cancel void. And he's never had a drink in his life. Never drank once. I don't, I, I, don't, I feel weird about those people. But I don't dude, trust that. Here's, the, here's the thing about people like that. The other guy that I know that's like that is... Um, the pen and teller guy, the guy that talks, whatever the talking guy is. Yeah, yeah. But anybody who's never had a drink and never done any drugs, those people can remember everything and they can talk clear as a bell without all the uhs and all the and all the and all the boom boom and all the bang and all the which dude, when I'm trying to put a sentence together, good luck. It's like trying yeah, to put that- it's try, like trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together on the that doesn't fly. have anything to do with drugs though yes it does it has a lot to do with me it has no, a, it no, has no, so no. much to do with me doing uh drinking so killing so many brain cells i'm, I'm just saying there are there are lots of people who can talk like i know what you mean about chris delia he can talk really fast and really succinctly and you're attributing that to the fact that he's never done drugs Fuck that. Bill Hicks could talk just like that. Bill Hicks makes Chris Dealey look like a fucking kindergartner, and he, Bill Hicks did all kinds of drugs. Yeah, but here's the thing about Bill Hicks. You're hearing him do his... his thing routine, that he wrote. His, his routines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to him being interviewed. I'm telling you, dude, it's like George Bush. Like, George Bush can't fucking put a sentence together because he fucking drank his ass off and did as much cocaine as you could possibly So did Obama, your, too, though. So did Obama. No. Obama not, partied. Obama partied a little bit. Obama party. He didn't party fucking like George Bush. Trust. No, George Bush was doing that Texas party. And so, like, people are like, "Oh, look at him. He's a fucking dumbass. He can't even talk." No, 
He's not a George Bush was smart. Was not a dumbass. He just did so many drugs he couldn't fucking put a sentence together. Kind of like me. But it's okay. But it's weird when you've never tried it. Like people who've never. It's one thing to try and be like, it's not for me. I don't want to do that. I want to be clear and all that shit. James Randi, this um, he's a magician and athe- famous atheist. I liked him. He was very like that. He's like, I never do any drugs. I never want to have anything obscuring my ability to think through the world. Like right. that's just how that was his worldview, which I think is cool. And he, you know, he obviously looks at drugs as like escapism, waste and numb pain. I think that's an oversimplification of drugs, but that is primarily what it's used for. And George Carlin saw it that way too, but George Carlin also did a lot of drugs. So he was able to go to that world and come back and take what was useful about it. But I do know a guy, getting a little bit away from like whether or not you speak clearly, I do know a guy who goes to AA because his parents were alcoholics and he's never had a drop. And he goes to weekly AA. Never had a drop. Never had a drop of caffeine. Because he was so fucked up by his alcoholic parents that his way of moving through the world is complete control over all that. And he goes to fucking AA. And he encourages, and he's one of these people that thinks everyone should go to AA. He was well, like, he's told, he's told me before, he's like, was your dad an alcoholic? And I'm like, yeah, he destroyed his whole life with alcohol. He's like, you need to be an AA. He's like one of those guys. I'm like, no, but here's the thing. AA is a 12-step program. That 12-step program is amazing and works really well. Now, they have this thing called Al-Anon. It's for people that are either in a relationship with an alcoholic. That's what it is. That's or, what it was. Or were born into raised raised by raised it, yeah. by. It. So I recommend it too. I mean, I I tell my mom all the time. I'm like, Mom, you should go to Al-Anon. Your husband's an alcoholic. Your son's an alcoholic. Your dad was an alcoholic. Your brother was an alcoholic. You know, she's surrounded by alcoholics and. When you're in that environment, it's a crazy, chaotic, scary, not a very healthy environment. And so you learn all these strategies as a small child, a baby, a toddler, a kid that you carry in your adult life. And they don't make your life, they make your life hard when you're trying to get through life using those strategies. And Al-Anon is a is an opportunity for you to figure some of that shit out with a 12-step program. So it it's great. I recommend it highly. The problem and I I've tried to go to Al-Anon. It's horrible. Al-Anon, if you're an alcoholic, going to Al-Anon is horrible. Because they all their problem the, the Al-Anon it, when you go to AA, your problems alcohol or sometimes drugs. Uh, when you go to Al-Anon, your problem is alcoholics. But your problem always in both in both groups, you're the problem. Of course, most people in both both groups don't identify themselves as the problem. They identify alcohol, drugs, people as the problem. And, and so you go victim. into those you go into those groups to figure out what the real problem is, which is you. You're the problem. Your perspective is the problem. You have to change your perspective, and you can do that by working those 12 steps. So that's what your friend does. Well, let me tell you what the 13th step is. 13th step is to <laughs> leave a positive review, to uh, subscribe, do, like, do, to share. Do you know what the 13th step really is, though? That stuff fuck somebody in the group. Dude, the 13th step is you... Get into AA and you're like, I don't have any alcohol. 
I need to do some fucking, and everybody in there fucks everybody. That's the way it works. That's called the 13th step, which they advise you not to do. They made a movie about it called Fight Club that I saw. Uh, the 14th step is to join the Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash I-O-K. You're going to get all sorts of cool stuff over there. The coolest thing you'll get over there is joining us now on The Secret Weekly, where I'd want to tell an Adam Temple story that is 100% not safe for work. Nice. And uh, so we're going to head to The Secret Weekly now. Thank you for all the support. You can write in Bob and Clint at gmail.com. We will read it on the show, and we'll see you on the flip-flop. Bye. 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 <laughs>